0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's episode of the podcast, I have a motor racing legend, a Formula One racing driving hero, a true gent, a Brit, a Scott. He drove for Williams, drove for McLaren, And he drove for Red Bull, all of the biggest teams out there with 15 Grand Prix under his name, one of the most successful British Mosa Racing drivers in history. Let's get on with it, because I'm secretly excited. It's David Coulthard. So David, thank you very much for coming to join us on the show today. I really appreciate you taking your time. I'm in sunny Dubai. You're in sunny Monaco and everyone I've asked questions about you. No one seems to give me any dirt on you. So why are you such a nice guy? Tell me about your backstory.
1: Uh, well, I grew up in the southwest of Scotland. So I think if you picture the scene, it's very much farming region, rolling hills, Dumfries and Galloway, uh, about an hour from the English border. So. You know, I've said in the past, uh, offending some of my fellow Scots, that I'm not a hairy arse Highlander. There's nothing wrong with being a hairy arse Highlander. I just happen to be from the Lowlands, and very close to the English border. Um, and our family business is Transport. It was founded in 1916. So you know, good, honest, hardworking family. And uh, luckily for me, my, my, my father had a passion for motorsport. So he, he got me into it, my brother into it, my sister. And uh, we, you know, I was the one that decided I wanted to make a career of it. But the, the reason to set the scene of where I grew up is I think it does make a difference. If you grow up in a city, if you grow up in, a, in a, a much bigger area, you know, you, you're, you're more street smart than I am. You know, you've had to get your elbows out at nursery school, you've had to probably fight for your dinner money at primary school. There was just none of that happened where I was. So it was a very idyllic place to grow up and a great place to sort of launch an attack on the world if uh, attacks the wrong world worked. But, you know, I, I knew at an early age, I wanted to compete on the world stage. And coming from a, a background of being polite and respectful rather than fighting for everything, I think does change a little bit the, the way you approach things. And, you know, I was always with competitors. If they asked me a question about setup or gear ratios, I would tell them because they wouldn't believe you anyway. Because why would you tell them the truth? You're a competitor. And it's just so complicated to either lie or to you know say i'm not telling you and all that sort of stuff there's many different approaches to how people go about their business and one of the things that you could criticize me for is that i was not ruthless enough or you know some people would say too nice which of course is bs because at the end of the day i'm, I'm a man and i do all the, the you know the good the bad and the ugly of any other man but um i just think there's a, a sporting respect. And that was something that was brought in or instilled in me at an early age, which, you know, you look your competitor in the eye and you aspire to beat them. And if you beat them, you expect them to acknowledge that. And if they beat you, you shake their hand and you know, go back to the drawing board and work out, how do I beat them next time?
0: Was your, was you, uh, I always thought your dad was the kind of entrepreneur with the transport company. I didn't know your grandfather had it before. Were they, were they those types of people as well? You kind of like my handshake is my bond, you know, I am who I am and so always respectful that way or were they kind of wily, kind of uh, ruthless from, from time to time business people? No, they were definitely very
1: much the, the handshake uh, approach to, to business. And my brother continues that today. You know, my brother's three years older and we're quite different in, in the, the lives that we lead. But I I just don't know anyone who's got a bad word to say against my brother. He's just a really nice man who loves transport, loves trucks, uh, loves being in Scotland, and therefore is the perfect person to, to be running the family business. I always had slightly more itchy feet to to you know travel and to explore and, and to see the world and it's given me an appreciation of how lucky I was to have the upbringing and the background that I had but it, it isn't a big enough draw for me want to be based there now as a almost 50 year old versus here I am in, in Monaco living in the same place uh, that I was 25 years ago.
0: When, when you think about you being a sportsman and as massively successful as you were was there a time that came either through your late teens or early 20s where sibling rivalry or any form of jealousy or missed opportunity kind of conversations or feelings came out between your brothers and sisters
1: not at all my brother was naturally gifted on a motorbike um, could drive very well but he just wasn't interested in competition and that was the key thing. Yeah, I was interested in competition. I was probably the least talented uh, between my brother and my, my younger sister, who was six years younger. But I, I really had that competitive edge that that saw me want to understand how do I improve, and you know, an attention to detail. When I when I look today, I have a you know, we have a twelve year old son, and it's a different generation, of course, but. I'm the one that washes his karting suit and cleans his helmet and prepares his bag and tell, tells myself, okay, he's still only 12, so it'll take a little bit of time. Where actually at 11, I was doing all that already because if I didn't do it, my mom and dad weren't going to do it. They were busy running a business. And if I turned up at a cart race and something was missing, it was on me. Whereas I'll, I'll ask my son, where's your gloves? And he'll go, uh, in my bag, I think. And I know the answer where they are because I've packed it but he, the point is he doesn't know because right now he's of that generation that, that things are kind of done for them so you know obviously over the coming years if he wants to race we've got to bring that out of him so he's got to be independent you know and and um, you know my my sister who I say was, was was talented didn't really have that same hunger to prepare everything so I think the only thing that stood me apart from them in terms of the ability to make a career was the work ethic and, and it's not that they don't have work ethic and there are other things that have interest to them but motor racing was really really important to me and I really wanted to get it right and therefore I didn't want to leave any you know stones unturned.
0: You've, you've talked about your your career as a sports person time and time again in countless interviews and as, I, as I've listened through many of them there's a couple of things that really resonated with me as an entrepreneur myself and you know, I come from an environment where 16 years I was part of a big machine. You know, there was 1,500 people as part of this machine and, and, and you belonged. You were, you were essentially part of a team. And, and I, I got a lot of joy out of that. And then in 2012, I became an entrepreneur and I set businesses up myself. Now, in one of the interviews you had, you spoke about the fact that you really valued being part of a team yourself. You get, you get a, a great satisfaction from that. Could you just elaborate on that a bit?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think if I, you know, if I look back on on the journey of life that I've had, I could never have known, of course, that when I started karting, it would lead to being a professional racing driver and being paid to do what I would do for free. Quite frankly, you know, all of the guys would do it for nothing if there was no option because they love comp- competition. But the definition of professional sports men or women is that you're paid for your services, and that has afforded me an opportunity to meet people from all walks of life but crucially and you'll understand from your own entrepreneurial uh, journey that contacts are absolutely key for being able to get answers and I I don't have a problem any more than you'll have a problem with somebody at a decision-making level says no thank you that doesn't it doesn't that that opportunity is not for me but just being able to get that opportunity is, is hugely important and 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 it's it's key to to being uh, part of developing business. One way or the other, it gives you that chance to, to you know, know if you're on the right track or not. So at the end of my racing career, I realized that I worked with you know, board members and CEOs of large corporations where because they were invested in the sport and therefore passionately engaged with the sport, they looked and respected what you were doing. And that gives you one shot Um, to approach them with with business ideas. I I work on that basis. Of course, if you've got a really good relationship, you get more than one shot. But I don't like my time to be wasted any more than I would imagine they do. So you know, I'm not going to be phoning someone up every five minutes. So I think that um, having been involved in the the team that is a Formula One team and then progressing beyond being a driver, I always wanted to to be part of teams where we can make a difference because I don't have the skill set or experience of my own to really do anything other than drive race cars. Um, so in this case of Whisper TV, which is a production business that um, was started by Jay Humphrey and Cyril Patel, my two partners, you know, we've grown to be one of the biggest, well, we're, we're the largest growing production business in Europe um, 10 years down the line. I don't know anything about television per se. I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I don't have keys to the office, <laughs> you know, that's, that's my, but I contribute other things to the business in terms of contacts and opportunities. So it's about understanding your role within the team. And I think uh, as you get older, insecurity goes out of you. Um, When you're young, you're, oh, I better not say something because then people realize I don't know the answer or I don't know what that means. Actually, just be honest. I don't know what that word means. I'll ask somebody even today because I'm going to learn something if they explain to me what's that big word they're using. And are they using it because it's the perfect word or are they using it because they're a bit pompous and they like to, you know, roll out, <laughs> the, you know, list of the new words they've learned in the, the, the dictionary the night before. Whatever it is that floats the boat, you know, when you're trying to communicate with people, it's important to get to the point and, and try and move things forward. And a, and a team is a wonderful way to, to move things forward more quickly.
0: When you, when you look at your, the steps that you took and the doors that were opened by you and, and with you and for you in, in your racing career, you, you, you talk about you know, being relatively lucky at points. And we always say in business, don't we, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But is that kind of amplified much, much more in the world of Formula One because there are so few opportunities and so many people wanting them?
1: I Actually, I think the, it's a perfect example of how, how few opportunities there are of all the sports you've got 20 seats uh, that are available which is you know, obviously much less than would be the case um across a, you know the premiership or the various major leagues across europe or uh, you know tennis as an individual sport you obviously got to have the talent to get yourself into the top 100 or, or whatever it happens to be but um in formula one terms there's very few opportunities and only two or three of those opportunities are really worthwhile for having a long-term career because without a winning car you're not really going to sustain it for very long so um, I think I've been incredibly lucky In fact, my whole life has been incredibly fortunate to, to you know be born into the, the family that I was to be given the support that I was given to have come along into car racing at the time that Jackie Stewart was starting Paul Stewart racing which then was uh, what he called the staircase of talent from Opel Lotus, Formula 3, Formula 3000, were the steps, the clear steps towards Formula 1. The fact that I was Scottish probably helped that journey as well. Um, Jackie's obviously a, a very proud Scot. And to get the Williams test drive at a time where test driving was a very important role. Today, being a test driver doesn't really mean a great deal in, in terms of laps. You do simulator work and you stand around at the racetrack drinking coffee but there isn't really much testing that goes on so I I was testing so much so the time I arrived in Formula One I had done several seasons of of mileage um, before my first Grand Prix which was incredibly valuable so I think all of those things have been very fortunate and um, uh, just the way the cards are dealt and I've, I've certainly got no complaints at all at any point for the cards that I was dealt
0: I have uh, uh, some friends that are ex-professional footballers that live here in Dubai and they found it really hard to adjust to life after the sport. And, you know, the different, different, different sport, but still an arena of fans, uh, attention and, you know, performing at a really high level. And then that comes crushing down. And we looked at uh, um, uh, one of them has become a football agent. His name's M- M- uh, Michael Silvestre. And he used to play for Manchester United, won a World Cup with France and stuff. And he said to me, the, the, the number of uh, professional footballers that become either alcoholics or bankrupt within a very short period of time after the sport is, is, in, is, is extremely high. Now, whilst there's lots of professional footballers that don't earn the kind of money that Formula One drivers earn. Obviously, there are some that do that, that sadness, that emptiness, that loneliness, that sense of belonging or not belonging, so to speak, after you finish your career as a, a driver. How is it? How tough is it to really adjust or how was it for you?
1: Well, I think that again, my father being a business person and, and, and always sort of thinking about the future, planning for the future. I remember at 14 years old sitting watching Formula One on BBC Two, James Hunt, Murray Walker, highlights were most of the races at that time. And when I say highlights, it's not there's a Channel 4 offering that we put out today, you know, two hours. Um, it was like half an hour. So, you know, you really got here's the, the racetrack. There's what happened and thank you and good night. So that was the access we had. But I remember my father saying to me two things when I was 14. When you get to Formula One, you might have, if you're lucky, have a 10 year career. So you've got to try and maximize your earnings and hence why I'm sitting in Monte Carlo. It could have been Isle of Man. It could have been the Channel Islands but they both seemed like relatively cold, wet, small islands. And I thought Monaco being on the the mainland of Europe was a a better location. And that's proven to be the case. And uh, the other thing he said, that after your career, you should take an example from uh, the example of James Hunt and look to work in television. So the year before I retired from Formula One in 2008, I'd already spoken with the BBC about um, working with him and then concluded a deal halfway through 2008. So I went from my last race in Brazil in the November to standing in Melbourne 2009 in the paddock with a microphone and at that point thinking, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Because you don't really get any formal training. You know, you, it, it's the, I think the mistake that anyone who's been interviewed many times thinks they understand broadcasting it, it's very different you know in you know this role that you're doing right now you've had to research you've had to you know get your your ship in in order before we have this conversation I've just turned up a bit late apologies again <laughs> um you know dressed inappropriately and uh, and ready to to respond to your question. So in terms of preparation, it's what I feel at the moment. So this is a much easier place to be than where you're sitting. And hence, when I picked up the microphone on behalf of BBC, I realized this is a proper job. You have to research, you have to, you know, you have to try and understand the the person you're talking to and you have to understand what the audience might want to hear at home. So all of that journey, when I moved here in 95, or when I picked up a microphone in 2009, when none of it was a surprise because it had actually been planned back in 1984, 85. And that's pretty visionary of my father, and he sowed a seed. So what I would say to people today is, of course, that if if you have a plan, then of course, you can adapt your plan as you go along, because new information comes to you. But if you have a plan, you shouldn't be surprised if you get there. So if the goal is to be a professional footballer, now, it doesn't mean just because you want to be that you will be, or if you want to be an astronaut. But Astronauts maybe be another, a good example. There are These guys, obviously, these men and women have to have an intelligence level to handle all of the technicalities of the role. But they've got to be driven. They've got to be focused. They've got to have a hunger and desire. They've got to want to leave planet Earth and head up there. And if they've had that desire at a young age, they, I'm sure they're not surprised when they end up being announced as astronauts because they're not superhumans, are they? They're just human beings that have had a had a desire. So I think that a lot of people think they're working hard, a lot of people think that they're planning, but they, they think you do it on a weekend. It takes years and years and years. <laughs> and even when you do get to a certain level, it's still not good enough. You need to keep improving. It's, it's, it's relentless. And uh, you know, coming to your point about you, you know, a lot of footballers and people or sports people having difficulty after their careers, I think it's because everything has been laid out for them and they haven't been as involved in their own planning. And I think that for motor racing, because we are part of a team, but we're we're independent of the team, we we take care of our own training regimes. We we do a lot of our own travel. And so it's it's not as big a surprise going into the next phase of your life. And I think it is more business orientated as well. The business of, of Formula One, getting personal sponsors, you know, working with partners, you look at a Formula One grids, pre-COVID, we would be being interviewed, or I'll interview a driver, five minutes before he puts a helmet on. You imagine going to into a football uh, the tunnel and, and talking to the footballer. Because it's not part of the culture of football, they would tell you to piss off. They wouldn't allow you to talk to them. Where actually, if you're a wee bit smart as a footballer, you'd go, hold on a minute, this is airtime, this is going to millions of people. Talk to me, yeah, what are we hoping? Well, we're hoping we'll win the football match. <laughs> you know, you don't <laughs> have to say anything amazing, but suddenly your face is on television to millions of people. And you you might have a great match. You might have a, an average match, but you've given yourself a platform to, to talk to people. And I think that those sorts of things are recognized and understood in our sport more than maybe other sports. And in the time they're 35 and retired, you go, well, how do, how do I do that? You know, they, we've been practicing it for, for decades.
0: It's interesting you say that. It made me think about something. Um, there, there was a, a sponsor of Minardi many years ago called Superfund. There were two Austrian fund managers, and, um, and I knew who they were. And I'm like, why have you sponsored Minardi? And they said, because they crash the most and they get more TV coverage than you would think. <laughs> and I hadn't even put that together when I was younger. I hadn't even thought about that as being important. And you saying that. It is, it's like how much, how much airtime can you get? How much time can you get in front of audiences? Because essentially you have to consider the, the, the opportunities with brands as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, I think that brand association, you know, today it's 12 years, almost 13 years since I stopped in Formula One. But I still have relationships with some of the larger brands associated with the sport now obviously not at the same level as when I was a driver because of course what I can deliver is is different today than what I could deliver but I can still you know in terms of enhancing their activation around Formula One they've got limited access to the key drivers so if you're an ex-driver who can add some meat to the bone spend time with their corporate clients and and share you know, some experiences, and in my case, uh, you know, with Mercedes, I can host the interviews with Lewis now, not only as someone that was kind of his teammate when he was at McLaren as a young driver, when I was a a driver, someone that raced with him briefly in 2008, but as someone that understands and appreciates Mercedes-Benz and also understands some of the challenges that he has as a driver, which maybe... more qualified journalist interviewer wouldn't have that insight they would do a better interview in terms of you know journalistically um delving deep into the psyche of the driver but sometimes these events the drivers especially during a grand prix weekend they they're not looking to be interrogated they're looking to engage with the audience share some experiences from the weekend and then get back to their hotel room to have room service with their supermodel girlfriend or boyfriend and go off to bed
0: and when you look at when you look at the drivers nowadays they don't seem to be they seem to be more media trained than they've ever been before but they don't they don't they don't they don't don't all seem to be keen to do it I mean you watch Danny Rick and he's you know a bundle of energy and a bundle of fun and probably a little bit of a loose cannon for time to time for for anyone interviewing him and then you get other people where it's kind of it's quite tough and it's quite challenging for, for the interviewer to try and get something valuable out of them. Is that just because they're inundated with the same questions over and over again? Or is that
1: because genuinely they don't really like doing it? I think there is an element of it's not the first time they've been asked what's their hope for the weekend. Uh, you know, certainly for me, when I was under the, the, say the, the, the biggest opportunity, but therefore the biggest pressure of my career, Thursdays were were a difficult day for me to get through because it was media day. I knew what the setup of the car was going to be for Friday. I knew what the expectations were in terms of our performance profile. All of that was logged away and I wanted to drive the car, but Thursday you were required to do FIA media, you would be available to world media. And I would do it to the best of my ability, but it wasn't the highlight of my weekend and because a lot of my career was about trying to beat a Mika Hakkinen or you know, Damon Hill and not regularly doing that so therefore the spotlight of performance was more often on me what are you going to do to get the, the better of Mika this weekend so you're already feeling the, the, the negativity before you've even had a chance to drive the car so I was always trying to manage that to try and do it to the best of my ability but equally not lose myself and lose the energy because you get a certain amount of energy for a grand prix weekend and it depletes as the weekend goes on because it's emotionally and physically and psychologically demanding until the very last lap of a grand prix and some grand prix are incredibly exhausting so you know if you go into the weekend at 100% which has got to be your goal you're not coming out at 100%, even if you've won the race. Psychologically, you'll be 101 or 110, whatever number you want to put. But physically, you're you're beaten up, you're fatigued, your brain, your ears are ringing. It's it's a harsh environment. So managing yourself over a a sports weekend is an important part of maturing and, and getting the best out of yourself. Some drivers do that by just basically one more dancers, not engaging with the media. I would say the the smart ones, and there's a number of them, that that respect the fact that they have a duty of care to their partners, their sponsors, and to to get the best out of, um, you know, the media opportunities. So I think a Daniel, I think a Charles Leclerc, I think a Max Verstappen, I think Lewis, I think there's a number of drivers that really get that and really do it to, to a high level
0: it takes you it takes you into a much deeper and respectful understanding of the psychology of the industry that you're in when you see the non-verbal communication from Alex Albon during the course of the season um f- from a positive and a negative standpoint when you, s- you see him you know no head in hands but you know his whole face when he, he didn't have a great result or a decent result his whole face told told everything didn't it you didn't need to ask a question because you could see and you felt for him because he's just a kid you know you felt really felt for him it's not all about driving a car is it it's, all, it's, it's the stories you're telling yourself as well
1: yeah there's an important aspect of of how you psychologically deal with, with the, the pressure outside of the car. Uh, you know, I love, there's an expression that Mark Weber, who I work with on Channel 4 uses, that um, he's got many great expressions as an, as an Aussie. Um, he goes, that Formula One's not a finishing school. So you, you, you've got to come prepared. You, if you're up against a Hamilton, uh, Alonzo, you know, these older in the 30, you know, Vettel at his prime, there's no excuse at 21 not to be up for the fight. If you're good enough, you're old enough. And if you're good enough, you're not too old. And of course you'll mature through your life and your your career. But in terms of speed and and battle savvy, these guys have been racing since they were eight years old. So if they they can't handle the fight in the beginning, the end is going to be much closer to the beginning than they would really like. That's the reality. You know, in the case of Alex, I love the guy, talented and, and all the way through the lower formulas, undoubtedly one of the, the, the you know top natural racers out there when you look at the way he finds space and goes wheel to wheel. But there's been a glaringly obvious deficit in qualifying which puts him on the back foot. And he's got to use his previous racing experience, World Championship winning team, to dissect what he needs from the car. It's in there somewhere. If he finds it, he'll have a, a you know a future career in Formula One. But he didn't find it during the course of the year, and that's the only reason he's not not in the car for next year.
0: Mm. Talk to me about your favourite car you ever drove. What was your favourite Formula One car when you look back on you? Because you had some corkers. So what was your favourite one? Yeah. The the ninety five Williams
1: was my favourite car. It was a three liter wide track, slick tires, um, just felt felt like a proper Grand Prix car, um, not the fastest by any means of how the cars evolved. But as a race driver, it's all about relative performance. So it doesn't matter if you're in a cart or whether you're in a Formula One car, it's about who you're competing against. So if Formula One was was essentially 100cc karting, if that's all we knew, that would be on the global stage. It just so happens that Formula One is today, hybrid 1.6 litre turbocharged, you know, uh um, wide tired uh, car but it's also 730 odd kilos it's also a huge tires to try and generate grip to compensate for the weight so it's a bit slower in a straight line because of more drag the, the the period i raced you know the cars were regularly over 200 miles an hour they uh, decent power decent power to weight um ad- adapted to adjustments you know i remember uh, monza 95 adjusting the front right height like half a millimeter or something and getting a reaction part of it was probably psychosomatic because i was in a zone but the other part was it made a difference and it gave me what i needed to feel and it just takes you it gives you another quarter of a tenth and it gives you half a tenth tiny margins but make a huge difference um, around a track like that
0: Yes, I'm very envious of that. I mean, uh, a lot lot of people that don't really understand the sport would say, you know, how could you going from one car to another car be so different? Surely they've got to be fairly similar. And maybe you take the example of George Russell in the Williams and then the Mercedes this year. But when when you stepped out of, 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 of one team into another team, were the cars dramatically different in terms of how you drove them or their drivability?
1: So I've got one experience which I've shared with with people, which I I, I therefore assume is the the case across the board. So the 95 Williams was a Grand Prix winning car. And uh, for 96, I moved over to McLaren and the 95 McLaren was not a very good car. And I was a bit nervous about testing it. Um, So it was in December, in Spain so I finished with the team in Adelaide 95 with Williams and then I went to test the car that was basically running at the back and I thought this is going to be a real handful and I went out and drove it and it was actually really nice to drive it just wasn't very quick so what I've experienced in my career having been lucky enough to have world championship winning cars and and potential cars is that the closer you get to the peak of performance, the more peaky the car is, the more difficult the car is, but the faster it is. And the further down the grid you go, it, it it's just not as uh, um, it, it's just not as peaky. So you you know you you're not doing the lap time, but it, it gives you a bigger margin to make mistakes and not fly off the racetrack. And maybe an example of that would be what's been going on with. Um, you know with Alex you know Max could make that car work and Alex found it really nervous at the rear where maybe Alex in a Alfa tauri or an, a car further down the grid would be like oh this this feels nice and that would give him confidence so I think that there's a lot of guys in the mid-grid think ah oh, if I had the Mercedes I would win but there have been a lot of guys who've come up from the middle to a top team top car and it hasn't worked out for them because they couldn't handle the, that peak of performance or that expectation, you know, Heinz Harrell for me was a, a guy that was exceptional through lower formulas, you know, teammates with Michael and sports cars, you got to say did a great job in Sauber and uh, Jordan, won Grand Prix in Jordan. When he went to Williams, I think he won one Grand Prix and it was a world championship winning car and then got booted out. He somehow couldn't work with that car and couldn't handle the expectation of That, you know, instead of being third being a good result or maybe getting a, you know, let's say a fortunate win with Jordan, third was a bad qualifying and anything other than first or second was considered a failure. So it's a different psychology. Talk to me about Whisper because I'm
0: interested in your brother becoming a successful business person and an entrepreneur essentially and you becoming an entrepreneur after being in the sport as long as you were as a, as a driver. How long after after you stopped driving did Whisper become a part of your life?
1: Well, when I worked with BBC in 2009, I was very lucky to work with Jake Humphrey who's a, I think a, one of the best... Uh, presenters, Uh, he's got an ability to read a script that he's created, and then deliver that almost flawlessly word for word to camera, which is a skill that I have tried, tried and tried to develop. And I'm not going to say I've given up, but almost 50 years old, I acknowledge that I'm never going to achieve that, that, uh, that level of being able to just deliver absolutely on point. And so it was inspirational to work with Jake and have that opportunity in what was a big opportunity for him because he previously worked in children's television. And there was a lot of people at that time thought, well, why are they giving a children's TV presenter one of the biggest sports presenting jobs? And the reality is it was visionary because he was such a good presenter. It was the right place for him to be. So during that phase, uh, Sunil Patel was working for the BBC and I was really surprised after the very first broadcast I did in 2009, because the things we'd discussed in the production meeting, I made some mistakes, uh, you know, what had been agreed. Maybe the cameraman hadn't been in place or a cue hadn't happened on time, because as you'll appreciate in live TV, when you're running in VTs you know, videotapes, as they call it, of course, it's not videotape anymore, but if you're running a VT. You, you've agreed how you're going to get into the point where the the, the production staff will know when to run the video. And if they run it two seconds slower, it just feels lumpy. You know, it's like an awkward silence. So a really tight team, things happen the way they should. So when I went to have a debrief afterwards, um, I was told, oh no, we, we we don't debrief together. We you know, we talk about it individually. And I'm like, hold on, where's the team? Because a Formula One team, you win the Grand Prix. You still have a debrief to talk about not all the good things you did, you, you talk about the bad things you did, because out of potential failure and mistakes is where opportunity lies. If you've done something perfectly, how do you improve on that? Right, you, you know, you can through evolution, but at that moment in time, you can't. The thing you didn't do perfectly, coming in the pit lane too slow, or coming in too fast, or mechanic being not quite good with the wheel gun, or strategy guy making a late call these are things that we should discuss why did it happen how can we get it right the next time so i think there's an honesty in a sporting team that allows constructive criticism that isn't allowed in day-to-day life you can't criticize anyone today because it hurts their feelings you know every i hear at schools they don't have sports days because no one's allowed to come last yeah i I was never the best sports kid at school but i admired the one that was naturally faster and i tried my best i didn't feel you know why why do i not get the gold medal which carried into my career
0: that drives me mad that does because as far as i'm concerned you know what preparation does that give you for life you know the moment you go out into the workplace someone might get a promotion that you don't get so what are you going to do oh everyone should be promoted at the same time it's going to happen things aren't going to go your way and, and that you know we all know that goes on in life as an adult so why not teach it to us when we're young
1: yeah 100 percent. life is not fair life is no no child asked to be born some are born into you know, wonderful privilege and some are born into adversity but everything that they thereafter happens a norming uh, assuming a normal you know, family unit is preparing that child for adult life and then whatever journey they particularly want to, to take. And there's many examples of people from, you know, great adversity achieving wonderful things. And wonderful things doesn't always have to involve, of course, you know, sporting success or monetary success. Success is whatever overcoming adversity is a tremendous success in, in itself. Um, so, you know, there's many different goals that people can have. But I think that not preparing people for the realities of the world, you know, the world is full of not very nice people who, who, who would like to take whatever you have from you in a not very nice way. So I think that, you know, being aware of that and being aware of how to try and avoid and how to try and keep away and how to, you know, I think these are all the life skills that come through school and, and, and sport and success and failure as part of understanding how to deal with things. Does it motivate you? Does failure motivate you? If it doesn't, if it makes you feel bad, okay, I don't expect anyone to feel good in failure, but you've got to turn your mind around to understand what was it? Was it something in your control? Was it something outside your control? It was something. And if it was in your control, perfect, because you can change it yourself. If it was outside your control, that's more difficult because you've got to then try and lobby other people around you to, to turn whatever that circumstance was around. But I think these are just the basic life skills. And we slightly drifted away from how Whisper came to be, but... Yeah,
0: because I want to get back to Whisper.
1: Yeah, but uh, it came to be because I was so exasperated that, that we, 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 as the BBC, weren't debriefing like a sports team. We were covering one of the biggest sports in the world, yet we weren't discussing it like sports people. And sport is business. And I think that uh, understanding how to get the best out of the circumstance was, was the, the stimulus for me to, in talking with Jake and talking with Suno, could we do something together? Could we produce sports content? And our goal right at the very beginning when, when the company was formed and we, we were all pulled cool together was one day we'll produce Formula One. Now it seemed impossible, improbable, not impossible, it seemed improbable, for a, for a company that hadn't even produced any content at that point. But coming back to when I was 14 and having the goal of, of you know, having, being a Formula One driver and then working in television afterwards, if you sow the seeds, when the, and if it happens, it's not a surprise, is it? Because the seed has been sown and we work towards a point and with uh, you know, Sunil's leadership, the CEO is, is just fantastic. One of, the, one of the best I've ever seen and going from not having the experience of, of being a CEO to growing into where he is today. you know, I think he was one of those guys that was born to, to grow in, in that, that sort of level and to that level. And I don't doubt he could be successful in any business that he chose to be involved. But the key thing was 10 years ago, he didn't have the confidence and he didn't have the support system around him from his team to know that he could be that person where I could offer support Jake could offer support and together, you know, the company with the great staff that are there across, you know, 80 odd permanent staff across three or four offices now, Wales, you know, London, um, you know, relationships with Royal Holloway College, uh, a partnership in an office in New Zealand to serve our T20 cricket and, and visions of growth going forward. You know, I want us to be the biggest sports production business in the world in the future. We might never get to that point, but that's what I would like. And if we ever end up there, it's not going to be a surprise because we've sown the seed.
0: You, you, you describe that and tell that story and two things resonate with me. One, Sunil, and you're putting your faith in somebody that wasn't a proven entity. And that was a, a, big, a big leap of faith. But also you talk with immense pride about how that business has grown and the success that it's had. Do you feel really proud of what it is?
1: Yeah, I do. I actually feel more of buzz than I do about my sporting career. You know, I, I should have, and I do have. Uh, you know, I do feel um, fortunate and proud of my achievements as a driver. You know, I never won the world championship, as as you know, but I was top three. I think five times, which is a reflection of the good teams I was driving with. Um, I won thirteen Grand Prixs. You know, a couple of Monacos, a couple of British, a couple of Australian few others I can't remember. And the reason I don't really remember is because although I'm just reciting that to you, but as much to myself, is I don't live in that sporting past. I, I, you know, I'm very much in the here and now, and to be part of and been able to have played a part in a business which is not directly linked to my previous sporting career, it, it confirms to me a belief that great teams are great teams. And it 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 doesn't. It's not about a sports team, a business team. One of the difficulties, and one of the things that Sunil and Jacob always spoken about as we've grown over the last decade, is how do we maintain that 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 team element, that that feeling of sort of all for one, you know, one for all? Because of course, over time, it becomes more and more difficult. You talk about your early business career working in you know, thousands of staff within a business. It's impossible for you to know all those people. But with good leadership, the leader, you know, whoever the CEO was, has has got to somehow know who all the line managers are and got to, you know, the key people that then are breaking it down into the responsibilities of knowing, you know, no one should be invisible within a company because they're either being overlooked and therefore their potential is being overlooked or they're not necessary for that business, and they're overhead, which is affecting the profitability of the business. And I don't want to put anyone out of work, but you know, everyone's got to deliver. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, I hope I never get to the point where I have to fire myself because I'm underperforming. There's, there, you know, there's definitely moments where more often than not, I'm sitting with Jake and Sunil on the team and I go, I'm the least qualified member of this team. And have I really given as much as they have? But what I have to offer and what I bring is something different that they're not as able to offer and to bring. And it has its value and it has its importance to the company.
0: I love the way that you have on your website, you have every employee's photograph on the website. I think that's a really, a really nice touch. Sometimes you just see the photos of the the, the seniors or the leaders or the owners in lots of companies, but you don't see all of the people. And it's really nice to see that a nice photo was taken of everybody. And uh, and and so you're right. Your people have to matter.
1: But it's important. And when you know, when I go, um, you know, I, I'm in this slightly unusual situation, I guess, where the business that I'm a shareholder in is employed by Channel Four to produce the Formula One show, and then Channel Four employ me as talent um, to to be a commentator. So I'm I'm there in two roles. I'm a commentator, but it's also Whisper team that are producing it. But there's always on the wall a photograph of all the members of the team that are with us that weekend, because we don't always have the same people. It changes as as the rotation happens. And, you know, with cameramen and sound people, um, we say cameramen, that's a, you know, I'm very conscious of of, we should be saying camera people, because as a, a Doesn't come off quite
0: as easily though, does it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. It's historical names that can get in the way today of of how we should refer to things. And as I say, with my involvement with W Series, which is the women's single seater championship, you know, I'm more more conscious than ever about you know really not defining a role by by gender. But there's a lot of historical terms that we use. But the um, you know the camera men and women, the sound men and women that, that we're involved with. I want to know and i want them to know who their colleagues are for that weekend before they get there it's a very simple thing to do it takes a little bit of time you know from from you know our production side but i think it's important that everyone's recognized and if somebody new is coming to the team they can put a name and a face and and all that sort of thing and you know our bbc days the camera guys would would have a, a bbc shirt but nothing else our team have channel four shirt or a whisper shirt, depending on the role they're doing and their name. And that name is, is, is not all, always there for their benefit to know you know, what the name is, but it's for other people within the sport to build up recognition. And so there was a bit of resistance when I first wanted to put that in place, because people are like, well, why do I need my name on my shirt? And I go, well, does Ayrton Senna need his name on his race suit? But it's on his race suit. Why do they put Senna on the side of his car? Is it so he remembers which car to get in no it, it's part of defining who the team members are ron dennis had ron dennis as the owner of mclaren on his, his shirt and all the other team members of oh, the name. team do all the
0: mechanics and engineers the and yeah. their first name or their nickname or whatever it is
1: yeah that's it yeah i think it's just about putting putting names to faces because it's very easy over a period of time that people might know someone by their nickname or might know someone just by recognition within an industry, um, but wouldn't have, have ever got over that first hurdle of engaging and, and getting the name. And did I forget the name? Oh, I can see the name. It, it just, I think it just helps the team building.
0: Whisper is expanding into other sports uh, all of the time. And obviously you have the kind of whole adventure sport world with the likes of Red Bull sponsoring a huge amount of different wild and wacky sports that seem to be taking place um jake and i have both interviewed nims die uh, recently before he climbed to the summit of k2 which he just got to a few days ago and you you look at somebody that's doing something as, as incredible as that i mean in winter k2 the toughest mountain to cry to climb and the mindset of a man that comes from a poor environment in nepal becomes a gurkha which is a dream come true and then decides that he wants to join the special uh, SBS he joined and the SAS. And he said everyone was Caucasian, six foot four with blue eyes, and I was five foot four. And I couldn't believe that I had to learn about English humour just so I could laugh at their jokes. When, when, when you meet people like that, they're truly inspiring. But across many kinds of sports, there are real inspiring figures. What sports outside of Formula One uh, are you keen with Whisper to get more and more involved in?
1: I think Mimes is a, is a, a great uh, example that you just give because Mark Weber has met him and Mark Weber has spoken, spoken to me passionately and extensively about his background, his story. So, all the things you've just, you know, you've, you've very sort of briefly touched on. Mark has, has spent time with him and really, you know, had a more in depth um, sharing of, of, of his journey. And Mark was instrumental in helping him become part of the Red Bull family, and, and Red Bull supporting um, that the, the most recent uh, ascent of K2 in the winter, which is you know was considered not possible, uh, you know, or extremely unlikely. Let's say that. Um, and he's got some other exciting things that he's planning to do as uh, in, in the future, which I've had a bit of insight to, um, and I don't doubt that he'll be able to do. So. People like that, I find scarily inspiring. Inspiring because they're absolutely committed to the cause and they, they, they prepare and they, they set targets and they go and ultimately in this case, they've achieved the target. The scarily word, which is not the perfect word, but I'm not a cunning linguist. I just get scared when I think about these extreme challenges. I don't want to do any of those extreme challenges. You know, having raced in Grand Prix cars and raced my whole life, and my career having started sadly through the death of Ayrton, I've just never been a risk taker or a daredevil or anything. So I'd be like, yeah, look, you go and enjoy the climb up the mountain. I'll be at base camp and make sure the radio is tuned in. I have got no explorer type, adventure type side to my body. I just don't want to be mentally and physically at that extreme in an environment that if it goes wrong, sadly, we know what's going to happen. That just doesn't seem like a good risk return. The way I'm wired, the way he's wired and his colleagues and all of the other great explorers of the world, they see it differently. And thankfully they do because it takes us all on a journey and we get to live the experience through their storytelling.
0: The way you've just described that is almost like you normalise Formula One as something that isn't risky, and a lot of people out there would look at that and think that people are nuts to be going that fast around a track and a piece of, uh, on a piece of tarmac. And I think that leans in a little bit. I had Sir Ranulph Fiennes and I had Sir Chris Bonington on as well, and they're famous mountaineers, and and they they exactly the way that you normalise Formula One, they normalise doing these ridiculous things. But it was normal. It was you know it was what they did. It was you know. I have an objective and I want to achieve it. I want to achieve it. And you with your Formula One driving, it's like you have an objective you want to achieve. It becomes it becomes very normal because you've grown up. How are we driving carts from age of eight or nine or something like that?
1: Well, uh, from a young age around the, the family transport yard, but I couldn't race until 11 years old. So I, that was... Okay, the...
0: but still 11 years old. It's such a formative time in your life. You know, I've, I've been up to Everest Base Camp and Kilimanjaro and other things like this. And, and, I, and I go up there and, and, I, and I, at 50 years old, am craving to get to the top of Everest. OK, it's something uh, I need to do in my life. I went to South America, to Ecuador, to go and climb the peaks in Cotopaxi and Chimborazo to do my glacier training. And, and I know I need to be there. I don't know what to expect. I've, I've watched as much stuff as I can on it. But if you said to me, jump in a Formula One car, I'll see if you can get it to the kind of speeds that you drive it around a track and hang on for dear life. i would be like, you're all right. You can do that. I'll just sit and watch.
1: I like the noise. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting how we're wired differently. I, I, you know, I admire your desire and your hunger to do that. I I'm just left completely unemotionally detached from ever being in that situation myself.
0: (laughs) Maybe you did it all. It's interesting to think about, because you and I are almost the same age. I, I was 50 last year and, um, it's I because I, my stimulation came from other things through my life. I still think there's something missing. There's something that I don't want to get too old and know that I then can't achieve something like that. And you'll know as well as I do that we still feel 30 years old. We don't feel 50 at all for any stretch of the imagination or in the late 40s as you are. And so, yeah, there's that. There's that. Maybe you... Maybe we've got an amount of it inside of us and you just did all of your stuff earlier on and now your bag's empty and I've still got some stuff in my bag I've got to get done with.
1: Yeah, I think from a business point of view, I still feel there's a calling and I still feel there's, there's something which I can't quite define now, which will be another part of my, my business journey. But sporting wise, you know, it's like a lot of ex-racers still race and you know, I was at the carp track on the weekend watching uh, our son go around in circles for two days. And people say, oh, do you want to jump in? And I'm like, not interested. I have got no interest in driving around a racetrack. I'm happy to do demonstrations in the Red Bull and bring Formula One to different uh, environments, but that's at my, you know, my speed and on my terms. But the minute you take to a racetrack, you owe the racetrack commitment and the commitment that I could give today and the capability I have today is a lesser form of what I was able to do. So why, why do it worse? <laughs> you know, it doesn't, just don't do it if it's gonna be worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hold, on, hold on, I've got to go back to Nim's Die because of what you spoke about then. It just triggered my memory. Um, I'm really sorry, but who was that crazy lunatic that was on the Burj Al Arab doing donuts on a helipad?
1: Yeah, but I love that because that's something different, and it's it's no, not, that's not.
0: that's for most people one of the most insane things you could imagine.
1: <laughs> no, it, uh, that was you know highly researched, and uh, I wouldn't do it if I if I thought there was. Of course, there's a risk, but there's a risk I could fall off this bar stool and and injure myself. You know, there's a risk in a lot of things we do in life, but um, it was well within what I considered. Um, uh, you know calculations and uh, risk mitigation there's some people that
0: wouldn't even go up and stand on that helipad let alone get in a car i'm well. scared of heights
1: so for me looking over was was somewhat challenging but uh, i don't go out on my balcony too often because i i get drawn towards the ground so um i just you know hopefully i i, I never ever try and experiment with that but uh, yeah heights are not not my friend
0: David, thank you so much for sharing your time with us this afternoon, telling us stories and really give us an insight to your career and also to your business life afterwards, which I'm really been pleased to see your, your animation and your, and your joy around that. It's been an
1: absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been fun to, to share some of the, uh, the journey and the experiences and the good thing for us in our, you know, halfway through our life, maybe slightly more at 50, um, there's still a few more business plays and I look forward to seeing you on the top of one of those mountains. Everest would be pretty cool. Send me a postcard.
0: (laughs) I will do. Ladies and gentlemen, David Coulter. Thank you very much. So there we have it. David Coulthard. what a wonderful guest and what a really nice guy. I think that a lot of the time we 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 don't necessarily understand the real person behind the the kind of facade that is the famous sportsman. But as you can see, Dave's a really approachable guy. He's um, he's friendly, he's warm, shares great stories. And I saw his immense pride. Maybe you noticed that, too, when he was talking about that kind of journey he was on in business after a successful racing driving career brutally honest, which is really fantastic and and just open and kind of enchanting kind of character. And to see what he's done to succeed in sports as well as in business has been really interesting to listen and learn from. Hopefully you've enjoyed the episode just as much as I have. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys and people like this and they bring them in and they run events and from those events we go and we learn from these incredible people on top of that they launched the Najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join become a member of take advantage of a training from all of these different people like real experts in their field I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I Events.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. You've got no idea how important it is these ratings. The ratings and the recommendations matter enormously. The reason they do is that if you recommend or leave comments, comments on this podcast or leave five star ratings then these podcast providers then push the content out to more people so more people can enjoy that content too so if you've done nothing okay please do me a big favor and just go out there give it a five star or give a give a give me some give me some feedback leave a comment i don't even care if you don't like it leave me a comment i'd really appreciate it take care folks